Hello, and welcome to an intelligent look at terrorism. This podcast is brought to you by Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. I am Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis. This is recorded on the 9th of April, 2020, and I am quite thrilled to have with me uh, on the phone uh, Mr. Ward Elcock, whom I know quite well because he was my director when I worked at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in Canada, or CSIS as it's known, from 2001 to 2015. Mr. Elcock was also Deputy Clerk at the Security Intelligence Secretariat in the Privy Council Office, and also a Deputy Minister in National Defence before he retired from the Civil Service. So, uh, Ward, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Phil. So, as I noted, you were the director of CSIS from 94 to 2004. You are, I believe, the only person to do two complete terms with CSIS. Is that correct? That's right. So, you're, you're, you were a trooper of nothing else. But the question I want to ask you is that you took over in 1994, and you lasted till 2004. When you, took, when you were made director of CSIS in 1994, what was the world like? And what was the service like, you know, going back now, what, 26 years ago? was i think was was it by that, that by that point in time it was 10 years old in fact the summer i joined one of the first things that I participated in was the sort of 10th anniversary of the service so the service was a relatively young organization it had changed from the rcmp culture in the sense that it had had 10 years of, of hiring um not from outside from outside the rcmp uh, some of, a lot of the senior officers were still former RCMP officers, but but the the, the nature of the service had changed dramatically, uh, and it had also changed because um, when the service left the RCMP, uh, it it had no administration, no structure beyond the, the intelligence officers that went with the uh, with the service. So the whole service, in a sense had to be built um, after the uh, after the departure from after it left the the RCMP a, a whole new structure a whole new way of doing things a whole new way of operating uh, had to be built so the service was while it was still young it had it had begun to take on its its own personality a new personality if you will from from being part of the secure the, the originally the RCMP the world too was was very different in the sense that that uh, at that point in time the, the the major issues were were still counterintelligence. Um, there were issues around um, counterterrorism. Counterterrorism was becoming more important. It had been uh, with the um, um, with the uh, downing of Air India that that started to become more important. But um, it was not. Anywhere near the focus it became uh, over the next uh, four or five years, um, but but it was still counterterrorism, counterintelligence was still the major focus to the point that I think that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, not too long after uh, I joined the service in in '94, uh, people did for a while wonder if we were going to have enough to do, uh, whether there would be anything for the service to do, because counterintelligence was such a big part of what service had, had historically done uh, as part of the RCAP and then when it became a separate organization. Uh, and, and it looked like there was not going to be any more uh, counterintelligence work. Now, that's changed again, uh, but for a while, uh, we all did wonder for about a year or two until things started to pick up in, in counterterrorism. 
uh, people did wonder what was going to happen. It's interesting to hear you say that because I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was at CSE, Communication Security Establishment, when you took over as the director of CSIS. And I recall this being, as you said, the post-Cold War period. And CSE was very much a Cold War organization. started after World War II. And I, when I joined CSE in 1983, I think I was one of 12 people out of 1,000 that did not do the Soviet Union Warsaw Pact. We were the, called the rest of the world desk back then. And I think when the wall fell, a lot of people were asking the same questions that you alluded to. What do we do now? What's our focus? So as the 90s progressed, and we got things like the Rassam case in 2000, and we had other snippets here and there. Of course, we have the Cotter family joining up with Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in the, in the late 80s and 90s. Was it a bit of a learning curve or challenge for the service to integrate, understand, and fully investigate the terrorism challenge, which, as you said, was there back to Air India in 85, but from an organizational perspective, was it, a, was it really difficult to get the investigators to wrap their heads around a very different focus moving from counterintelligence to counterterrorism? Uh, there's no question that there's, that there's a difference in, 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 in counterintelligence and counterterrorism work. Uh, and it's not necessarily easy to jump from, from one to the other. Uh, it's not not a, they aren't they aren't the same kind of of, uh, of exercise, frankly. Um, I took it. I think it took some time, uh, but I think the service had a couple of advantages. One, uh, technologically, the service had had put a lot of effort into uh, making technological progress. Um, people are expensive; they were becoming expensive even in that even in that time. And so the service had put a fair amount of effort, more than most, into uh, developing its technological capability. I think that gave the service a large edge. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of other services, including some some that are much much larger and and in theory more capable, uh, who were never were not even some years after uh, the, the, the World Trade Center. Uh, attack uh, still did not have the technological capabilities that we did uh, allowed uh, full database searching and so on and so forth which which was uh, important for counterintelligence but even in a sense even more important for counterterrorism so I think we had a technological leap I think the other reality too was people were glad to to know that they had that the organization had a future um, and I, I think people, um, it took a little time for people to, to find their feet in a new, in a new kind of operating environment, but I think people found it relatively quickly. And we did, as I said, have a couple of advantages, but, but one of the advantages as well, being, we were still a relatively new service. So, so we didn't have a lot of ingrained habits and a lot of ingrained ways of doing things. Uh, I think that also helped the service. Uh, make faster progress. When you talk about there being a distinct difference between counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations, I'm going to go and say that that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you're doing counterintelligence, they're often very long investigations. You're looking to see who are the actors and what are they doing. And and, and most times you're, you're aiming towards perhaps declaring somebody persona non grata and getting them out of the country because they're a foreign diplomat doing things they shouldn't. Whereas in counterterrorism, you're looking at people who are actually planning to carry out acts of violence, who, who may, which may in fact kill Canadians. 
is that sort of the way that the service sort of migrated from from looking at things through from a counterintelligence lens to a counter to counterterrorism lens? And then how did that affect the relationship with the RCMP? Because at the end of the day, it's the RCMP that has to, in a sense, take over to gather evidence to, to lay charges and go to court. The service doesn't do that kind of thing. So is that how counterterrorism was different than counterintelligence? Uh, I think that I mean I think that is that, that's certainly one of the differences of the reality that that counterterrorism is about things going bump in the night and and there is a an immediacy to uh, to to the investigations that in some sense in a counterintelligence investigation you don't have because as you say there they give they can be much longer investigations uh, uh, they 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 may take years to bear fruit, and in fact, you may never know that you successfully did a counterintelligence operation uh, by arresting somebody or or whatever. You, it may just lead to uh, an operation in which you watch people, or you feed them uh, false information, or uh, you try and all sorts of different options. Uh, so yeah, there's the immediacy is a is a huge difference. Uh, and I, I, that was a big driver in 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 the in the, in, in the service making progress on counterterrorism. It did the reality of of um, uh, the relationship with the RCMP. I think it's much improved in the last while. I think the service and the RCMP have found ways to manage some of the issues. Uh, the issues, though, really actually. I mean, in part, they they came out of the different cultures of the two organizations. Um, uh, one collecting intelligence, the other doing collecting uh, evidence for prosecutions. Uh, the, there was some tension around that, but the real tension came from the constitutional from from a constitutional problem, which is that um, if if you're being prosecuted for a crime, including terrorism. You're entitled to uh, disclosure of all of the Crown's case. Uh, and the instant that CSIS was involved, uh, or it became clear that CSIS was involved, then uh, sources and methods that the service might use, which the RCMP might not have access to, could be could be forced to be disclosed. Uh, so it uh, it made it very difficult for us to provide information to the RCMP in some cases and for the RCMP in some cases to accept it because if they accepted it, uh, they didn't know if it would contaminate their case. They didn't know for sure that we would come along later and say, no, you can't reveal that information because of the way it was collected or the source that collected or whatever. Um, so that, 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 that constitutional problem, uh, and, and we're not the only country that, that deals with a similar problem, but it is a uh, it is a serious problem. Have was a serious problem in Canada. I think that the service and the RCMP have found ways to manage it. Doesn't mean that there aren't still some tensions. Uh, and the reality is there there have to be some tensions because um, uh, it, it it is by definition you don't want you don't want a uh, an easy gap where there is a you know you things can fall between the RCMP and CSIS, you do want a certain amount of overlap, and a certain amount of overlap, by definition, means a certain amount of tension and conflict. It's interesting you talk about disclosure. Of course, there's a, an ongoing court case here in Ottawa, you may be aware of, uh, involving a man called Elso Peshtari, 
who has been uh, charged with facilitating people going to join ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And the, the, the defense has asked for all of the CSIS records in the case of an individual who later became an RCMP agent, but was first a CSIS source. And, and you allude to those difficulties that, you know, CSIS does not collect evidentiary standards and it doesn't want its information to be disclosed in the court. So I, I agree with you, it's getting better, but this is, this is still an ongoing issue. If I can go oh, back- and it, You're right, it, is still, it, it hasn't disappeared. But I think they have found that the service near CP have found ways uh, to, to manage some of those issues. And I'm really glad to hear that because you know both agencies obviously have their mandates and, and they have their places in the in the counterterrorism slash counterintelligence slash keeping us safe. Oh, absolutely, world. absolutely. If I can go back to 9/11, I, I remember I was still a secondee from CSC at CSIS at the time. I remember where I was and and what it meant for me. And I remember the next month be very much of a blur. What, what are your memories of, of when 9-11 happened and the service's response to, like when they were being told to, you know, leave no stone unturned to find out if there were any, first of all, any Canadian links to 9-11, and secondly, what the landscape was here in our country. What are your memories of those, of those sort of weeks and months following 9-11? I remember, I remember the morning of, of 9-11. I think, in fact, we were briefing the new chief of CSB uh, that morning as, as when somebody came in and said you should turn on the TV, <coughs> the, there's been an attack on, on the World Trade Center. Uh, I think the reality, I mean, I think people, society tends to get uh, the World Trade Center as the beginning of serious terrorist problems, issues, but with groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. I think the reality for the service was uh, the attack, the attack None of us knew that where the attack would take place. None of us knew would be. No one knew how it would look or whatever. But but I remember that feeling that morning. This is what we have been expecting for some time. Um, we had there had been a lot of chatter uh, for some time uh, about the possibility of an operation going on. Nobody knew what it was, as I said. Uh, but everybody knew that something was in the works. That something was coming and. and it was not not unexpected, and in a sense, I mean, for the service, although for society, I think that was the beginning of uh, Al Qaeda, uh, people's understanding of the existence of Al Qaeda. The reality is, uh, it had started earlier for the service, uh, but you alluded to some of the cases. But a lot of folks uh, had had come to Canada, uh, particularly out of North Africa, and, and particularly in Montreal. Uh, you talked about Ahmed Rosam, but there'd been others. So we had already had some some connections to those kinds of investigations. We already knew that it existed. We already knew that it was an issue. Uh, a number of services, the French in particular, were were repeatedly telling us that this was a serious issue and a, a serious problem for the future. So uh, it, it wasn't entirely a surprise, but I can still remember that morning. I, I do recall the professionalism of the IOs and everyone else at the service who basically just put their, their noses to the grindstone and, and worked as long as they had to. Because, you know, I remember that you know, one of the fears was, God forbid, there was a Canadian connection to the 19 hijackers. That would have been a really problematic issue for, I think, bilaterally. But I, I think that, as you said, this has been going on for a while with the North Africans, especially in Montreal, and a whole bunch of cases that it didn't take us all by surprise. I remember there being a, a reporting line in, in SIGINT. It was it was called the UBL Network. And we all thought, well, who, who's the UBL Network? But you're right. Yeah. We've been following this for quite some time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're right. That was the first thought. The first thing that, that we set out to do is we wanted to find out 
where everybody was that, that we were worried about. Uh, secondly, we wanted to make sure that there was no connection to, to in Canada, through Canada to, to the event. And there were, and half still, there's still all today, people in the United States who think that uh, some of the attackers came through Canada. In fact, none of them did. They all, they all went through to the United States legitimately and set up their operation inside the United States. Uh, with no, nobody ever translate through Canada at all. Um, but there was a rumor for a little while that, that uh, one of the groups had flown into, uh, in through Maine or into Boston from, from Canada, but even that was ultimately disproved. Uh, but but the, the, there was a huge effort to try and make sure that that, uh, uh, that was in fact the case, but there was no link to Canada. Actually, Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president against Donald Trump, she was one of the ones that raised the rumor again. This was in 2016, so 15 years later, that in fact some had come to Canada. I, I, I want to change tack a little bit here, Ward. And, and you know, you spent a, a, a whole career in security intelligence, grossly speaking, as did I. If I were to ask you, how well do you think Canadians appreciate or understand threats to public safety and national security? How are we doing as a country on that scope? Uh, I don't. I don't think Canadians do. I think they occasionally the concerns about security, national security, will spike in the event of an attack close to home uh, or major attacks in, in other parts of the world uh, that we're familiar with. Uh, but I don't think, for the most part, that that Canadians do feel particularly concerned about national security. I mean, they, it's a long time since since the Russians posed a. Uh, a military threat to to uh, to Canada, to North America, if you will. Um, there we have three oceans surrounding us, basically, and the United States to our south. Most Canadians, I think, uh, perceive uh, themselves as living in a in a safe uh, enclave uh, from the rest of the world, from the problems of the rest of the world. I I don't think that that's strictly speaking true. Um, um, but but having said that, I think that's what most Canadians believe. Now, is that a good thing, a bad thing, or both, or neither? That Canadians don't obsess about national security and public safety. I I, I think we would agree that we want them to think about it occasionally and to to acknowledge the group that's the work that CSIS and the RCMP and its partners do. But the fact that it's not headline news for most Canadians, where would you put that in terms of sort of how Canadians see themselves and how they see the world? Ah. Uh, it, it, in truth, it's not entirely unrealistic. I mean, the reality is Canada did not suffer a, a really major attack, uh, not despite the fact that it was named both by ISIS and Al-Qaeda as a potential target. Canada never suffered a, a really serious attack. Uh, so in some sense, Canadians are right that, that it, this is a pretty safe place to be. Having said that, it is not entirely safe. Um, and in you never can be sure that there won't be an attack if, if there are major terrorist groups operating or if there is a military threat from somewhere. Um, so I guess the $64 million question is whether, whether it is whether it's just that Canadians feel safe or that, that nobody has really explained to Canadians uh, that indeed there are risks in the world um, and that they have a potential. They can do potential harm to Canada, uh, sometimes indirectly, but perhaps even directly. 
uh, and that therefore we need to worry more about those things. Uh, and it's true both of sort of national security issues in the sense of, of CSIS, the RCMP, CSE, but, but national defense as well. Uh, I think Canadians struggle with the idea of, uh, of, of uh, funding the military to the extent that it needs to be, that it needs to be funded. Uh, just as they, uh, they probably don't really, aren't really sure uh, how much value it actually brings because they feel relatively safe. Um, uh, is it a question of leadership or is it, is it just Canadians' feelings? I've never been quite sure. Um, I think uh, I would like to see Canadians more concerned. I would like to see uh, uh, our, our political leaders more concerned about some of those issues and speaking to Canadians more about some of those issues. And, and perhaps with, with, uh, that would lead to a broader understanding by Canadians and the impact of our national security risks and threats that they care about. I want to pick up on that because in the aftermath of 9-11, as I'm sure you remember, we all made out like bandits in terms of money and, and resources. You know, when I left CSC to join the service in 2001, it was about a thousand strong, and now I understand it's it's, it's somewhere north of three thousand. The service also got a lot of money and resources. A lot more training classes were held for intelligence officers per se. Given that the threats that you've alluded to are, are, are mutating as we speak, so of course counterterrorism is still a priority. Counterintelligence, which we all many may have thought was dead, is rearing its ugly head. Uh, foreign interference is becoming much more of a concern here in Canada from a variety of actors. There's the whole cyber angle, which is you know, maybe largely a CSE responsibility, but the service has a role to play there as well. Do you fear that the combination of Canadians' lackadaisical attitude towards national security, and, and you also mentioned the government, and I, I happen to agree with you on that, I worked in this, in this area for more than three decades, and I was sometimes appalled at how little... Uh, Canadian officials understood intelligence and, 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 and the importance of it. Do you fear going forward, and maybe now we're talking Corona, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, that people will argue for less money being spent and less resources on national security in, in, in a time where, in fact, you need more because the multiplicity of threats, it's not just terrorism as it has been for the past 20 years. As I said, you know, counterintelligence and nefarious actors are rising. Is that, a, is that a scenario that's possible going forward in Canada where we get less rather than more? As a result of, of, of the pandemic, I, I assume that, that the belts are going to be tightened uh, going down the road given, given the increase in the deficit that, that will inevitably come. So it may well be that there will be pressure to reduce budgets uh, even for national security. I would hope that the budget budgets for national security, whether it's the military or and the RCMP, uh, are, are not tightened too much because, as you said, I mean, there, there are legitimate threats out there. Counterintelligence that has begun to rear its ugly head. The Chinese are, are uh, uh, have been operating here for years, and, and um, the issues of, around foreign interference, if you read the press in Australia and New Zealand, and I think there's almost no reason to think say things don't go on here, uh, the degree of foreign interference by the Chinese is, is considerable. So I, I would hope that I that we don't see uh, a huge reduction in budgets, but 
uh, it would be, I would be not, I think we'd all be naive to think that there won't be pressure on all budgets as a consequence of, uh, uh, the deficit that will will be the fallout from from uh, the, the pandemic. The, the the figures are clearly almost impossible to understand, as you mentioned, with what the government's spending to prop up the unemployed and things like that. Lastly, Ward, I just want to ask you. This may be an unfair question to ask at the spur of the moment, but you spent a, you know a long time in security intelligence in this country, and what would you say you know if you could look back and, and pick out a couple of highlights for you? that uh, un- sort of unraveled during your career? What, what is it that you, you can point back and say, wow, we did a great job on that, and Canada, as a result, is a safer country? I think, I think we did, a, I think we did a, a, a very good job on, on the lead-up to and, and the aftermath of, of the attack on the World Trade Center, um, in other words, the sort of peak of al-Qaeda. Most of those investigations obviously don't get talked about, uh, uh, and you can't really uh, explain to the public the success in many cases. Uh, but I think we we did a great job. I was certainly very proud of, of the organization and the, and the people working in it. Uh, what we did through those years, I, I think we uh, we took the organization a long way from from where it had started in, in 1994 uh, through those years. Uh, the one I sort of had... Uh, it's a smaller case, but the one I always kind of enjoyed the most, I think, probably was was the uh, the two Russian illegals who were arrested in I think it was '95 and '96, and by the RCMP in Toronto. I mean, that that is a, a spectacular case. It was a spectacular case, uh, and if you could tell that story, it would be probably one of the best, better spy movies that that you could put on the screen. Uh, but unfortunately, it probably will never get told, uh, at least not, not in my lifetime. Um, but that, that was certainly a, uh, one of the more fun moments. I know you and I are obviously biased because of the fact we spent so long in this this particular community. But I, uh, you're right. There, there there are a lot of great stories, and there are a lot of great men and women who dedicated their professional lives to doing what they needed to do to keep Canada safe. I just want to I want to thank you, Ward, for being part of this podcast, and, and more importantly, I want to thank you for your your decades of service to Canada. And uh, I, I think you stand out as as a as a, an example of of leadership in, in the service when you were the director for for ten years and. Um, I just want to wish you all the best going forward. The same to you, Phil, and I have to say it, it, uh, it was a real privilege for 10 years. I think we, we, as an organization, as a group of people, we had a lot of fun, achieved a lot of successes. Um, as I said, most of them you can't talk about very much. Uh, maybe if we had been able, if we could talk about it, people would understand the service does better and, and understand national security issues better, but that's the way it is, I guess, with with intelligence it is largely behind the screen uh, but it was 10 years uh, and, and it's an organization of which uh, i was very proud and still i'm very proud well said I, I guess that's one thing i'm trying to do in my so-called retirement is, is to tell the service story and uh and we'll see what we can do so so th- that was it for this podcast i want to thank people for listening you can always reach me on on email borealisrisk at gmail.com or on twitter at borealis save you can find me on on linkedin and on facebook you can also subscribe to all the content that is on my webpage. Go to www.borealsthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button, fill in your information. Love to hear what you think about my conversation with Ward Alcock or any of the information you have. Please get a hold of me and uh, suggest ideas for new podcasts and blogs. I'll talk to you again soon. Stay safe.